Thank you uh, to David and Ellen. Um, good morning. Um, for those of you uh, here in person, for those of you joining us online, it is just so good to see all of you. And if you don't know me, my, my name is Caleb. I am the, the youth minister here. Uh, Patrick, our preaching minister, he is uh, out of town. Him and Corrine are uh, celebrating their, their wedding anniversary uh, out in the rolling hills of, of North Carolina. And over the past several weeks, Patrick has been leading us through this sermon series called The uh, Happiness of Pursuit and wrestling with what does it mean to, to search for God and to pursue him. And over the coming weeks, he's going to lead us through a series uh, called Strange God, you know, as we, we seek to, to learn what scripture has to say about this God that we serve. And so as I was talking with, with Patrick and we were trying to figure out what this sermon would look like today, I decided uh, it would be best if I told a story. Because what we, that's what we do so often when we gather here each week is we tell each other stories. Whether it be our own, like we've been doing in our Sunday adult class, or it be the stories found in scripture that Christians and the people of Israel have been telling each other for thousands of years, we gather here to tell stories. And so that's what I want to do today. And it's a story that if you've grown up in the church, um, you're going to be quite familiar with, but I think it's helpful for us as we continue growing as a church body. Our story begins in the country of Egypt with an enslaved people. Um, if you can remember through the, the book of Genesis, the Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. He was dropped into a pit and sold into slavery by his brothers. And then over time, through faithful servants, even a service, even after years of hardship, Joseph rose through the political and influential ranks of Egypt, and he helped guide that country through severe famine. And because of this, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were allowed to, to live in Egypt, and they multiplied, and they lived a good life. However, scripture tells us in the beginning of Exodus, of the book of Exodus, that uh, there was a new Pharaoh. And as we know through history, kings come and kings go, and the same is true of the Pharaohs in Egypt. There's a new Pharaoh that says that he did not remember Joseph and what Joseph did for the country. And so this, this king of Egypt, this Pharaoh, he looks over his land and he sees that the Hebrew people are so uh, multiple, and they've overrun this land, that there's none for the Egyptians, that the Pharaoh decides to take matters into his hand. He issues this command that any Hebrew boy that is born is to be killed. And so he gives us the command to the midwives that when a Hebrew woman gives birth, if it's a boy, that baby is to be killed. And Exodus tells us that these Egyptian midwives had compassion and that God gave extra strength to the Hebrew woman so that this onslaught of murder could not happen. And our story picks up with one particular boy. There's a woman who gave birth to this boy and she hid him and take care of him as long as we could. And when she could no longer hide him, she put him in a basket and set him down the river Nile. And scripture tells us that Pharaoh's daughter was at the bank and saw this baby in a basket, this Hebrew baby, and had compassion for him. And this, the, 
Pharaoh's daughter, took the baby. She had one of the Hebrew women uh, nurse him, which turned out to be the boy's mother. And as the child grew older, the woman took him back to the princess, and this princess adopted the boy and named him Moses. And so our story begins with this, this, this man, this child, who under the Pharaoh's law, he was not meant to live. He was supposed to be killed because he was an Israelite boy. Instead, he has survived. He has been adopted into royalty. And to steal the title of the Disney film, he has become a prince of Egypt. And it's this, this remarkable story that paves the way for how God is going to reveal himself over and over again. Um, the scripture tells us in Exodus that it just says Moses had grown up. And it doesn't tell us exactly how old or how much time has passed, but Moses has grown up and he is, he's, a, he's a full-grown prince of Egypt, part of Egyptian royalty. And you have to imagine that Moses felt this inner tension. Uh, his whole life he has been raised in the palaces of Egypt. He is intimately aware of Egypt's political life, their philosophies, their approach. He is intimately aware of the religious practices of Egypt and their gods and how they worship. At the same time, Moses can look at the Egyptians and realize that those are not his people and the people that look like him are the people out who are enslaved and oppressed and who are working. He has this tension because his entire life, he has witnessed the people who look like him being enslaved and oppressed by the country that has raised him, by the country that has adopted him. And the story goes on to tell us that uh, one day Moses, he, he's out and he's observing how the Hebrew people are being mistreated. And he sees this one uh, he, Egyptian man abusing a Hebrew man. And it tells us Moses intervened. Uh, and Moses intervenes and he kills, he murders the Egyptian, and he hides the body in the sand. And scripture doesn't tell us much more about how Moses felt after this. It doesn't tell us if Moses felt uh, guilty or if he felt remorse for that decision. It doesn't tell us if he felt like he had some sort of hero complex for this life-saving decision. What it does tell us is the next day, Moses observed two Israelite men fighting with one another, and he confronts them and says, why are you hitting one another? And this Hebrew man looks at him, and, and you can imagine kind of sarcastically responds, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me too? And it all dawns on Moses and this whole life he has comes crumbling down because whether or not he thought he could get away with this murder, news and word has traveled quickly and he must flee into the wilderness. So once again, this boy who was not meant to live, who has been adopted into Egyptian royalty, now finds himself as an outcast living as a shepherd in the wilderness. It's in this wilderness that he meets his wife, Zipporah, and he begins to shepherd the flock of his father-in-law. And that's where our story picks up, is here in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. 
it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. God said to him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it, is, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and, they, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you, what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to the Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This passage of scripture, it's one of my favorites in all of the Bible, and I think it's because it's so powerful because of how odd and strange and unique it is. Um, if you can just imagine yourself in Moses' shoes, you're shepherding a flock in the wilderness, and you see this bush that is somehow on fire yet isn't consumed, and the curiosity gets the best of you, and you want to go see what is up with this mystifying sight. And as you approach, the voice of God says to you, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. And he identifies himself as the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you're Moses, you have heard these stories. This is a story Hebrew people know is of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's commanded to return to Pharaoh for the freedom of his people. And Moses is rightfully concerned. He says, well, who should I say that you are? And the response he gets is incredibly vague and incredibly strange and mysterious when God says, I am who I am. And if you're Moses, you're thinking, that tells me nothing. 
Because if you're Moses, you've grown up in Egypt as a prince of this country that is very religious, that has all these beliefs, and has all these gods who are believed to be very powerful, these gods with very specific names and with very specific realms of dominion. When, if you are an Egyptian and you want to worship God, you have a specific God for specific tasks. They are very tangible, one could say. And yet, the God of his ancestors reveals to him, my name is, I am who I am. It's vague, it's strange, and it's mysterious. And Moses is hesitant to return to Egypt. Uh, scripture tells us that he, he tries to argue, you come up excuses, God, I'm not a good talker, I'm not, speech is not my thing, and they come with compromise. And so Moses returns to Egypt alongside his brother Aaron, and then begins these various encounters with Pharaoh. There's a, it's a new Pharaoh. Kings come and kings go. There's a new Pharaoh who is just as resistant to the Israelite people and just as bent on oppressing them. And there's all these interactions. Uh, when Moses first returns to Egypt uh, and demands the freedom, the response does not go well, and Pharaoh tells the people, you know what, I'm doubling how much, I'm increasing how much bricks you have to make, but you have to do it without straw, and the hardship increases. And then there's a response and begins the 10 plagues. Um, this is a story that we grow up hearing about from a young age in church. And I remember as uh, even really pretty recently, I used to sit here and always wonder, why did God choose these plagues? I mean, they all sound horrible, but what made him choose frogs? Or what made him choose darkness? Or what made him choose all these various things? They just seem so random. Um, and truthfully, I was talking early this morning with Steve and Daryl. After the first plague, when water turns to blood, I'm, I'm out for the count. Yes. I, I'm giving in whatever you want. But Pharaoh is committed. And it says Pharaoh's stubborn. Scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But what we tend to forget is that Egypt, this uh, political military powerhouse, was a very religious nation. And Pharaoh was committed not just to his own stubbornness. This, it wasn't just all him, but committed to the power of their gods. Scholars have shown that each one of these plagues is, is God, is Yahweh, showing that he is more powerful than one of the prominent Egyptian gods. Uh, these aren't random, these aren't plagues chosen at random as if God thought, you know what, flies will really aggravate them. This is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I am more powerful than these Egyptian gods. Because it's a reminder to not just the Egyptians, but to the Hebrew people as well, how powerful the God of their ancestors is. Because we, are, we know from Joshua 24, verse 14, that while they were in Egypt, the Hebrew people worshipped the Egyptian gods. Uh, they still worshipped the God of their ancestors, but there was this, uh, in the culture, culture of the day and how religion worked, there was this understanding that if you were the oppressed people, your God was inferior to the other gods. 
Um, if, you were the, if you were the nation on top like Egypt, you had the superior gods worthy to be worshipped. And with each one of these plagues, this is God, this mysterious, strange, vague God who identifies as I am who I am, showing I am more powerful than any of these specific gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh, after 10 of these plagues, after 10 of these confrontations, he's momentarily persuaded and thus begins the exodus where the name of the book the story comes from gets its name. And as the Israelites are fleeing, God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites march on dry ground to make their escape only for the sea to come crashing together as Pharaoh and Egypt changes their mind to pursue them. And it says, after all this, it says in Exodus 14 that the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses as a servant. If you were a Hebrew person, your confidence is at an all-time high. Your faith in the God of your ancestors has never been stronger because you have been an oppressed people, and here has your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, showing his might, showing his power, and you have a spokesperson in Moses. Your faith and your confidence in your God has never been greater. And I wish we could say that the rest of Scripture just tells us that it goes smooth sailing from here. But the reality is that the wheels begin to fall off not too long after. Uh, it first begins with some grumbling in the wilderness. You see, it, it says that the Hebrew people have been in the wilderness for about uh, a month and a half when they start to realize they're pretty hungry. Um, and they begin to say things along the lines of, yes, in Egypt we were slaves. Yes, in Egypt we were oppressed and abused. Yes to all those things, they fed us. And we had full stomachs. The, they begin to long for the security and the comfort of Egypt. And God provides for them. He provides them manna and quail, and their faith is restored, and they keep pressing on. But it doesn't get much better after that. They arrive at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountain, and he begins to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And what's really interesting is how the people respond. You see, they followed this God, this mysterious God, on faith because they've seen how he demonstrated his power. They had the spokesperson in Moses. Moses is gone. He's up on a mountain. And they haven't heard from him in quite some time. And they haven't heard from God in quite some time. And they begin to wonder, I wonder what's happened to Moses. And they get a little anxious about their religious state because this mysterious God who they, they couldn't see or touch all of a sudden doesn't seem to be there or so it appears. And so they approach Aaron and they tell him to make gods who will go before them. And so Aaron gathers all of the, the gold jewelry and the plates and things they can and they smelt together the golden calf. And what this move represents is it's a move from 
the vague and mysterious to the specific and tangible, or so it seems. It's a move back towards Egypt. The challenge of this is that the Hebrew people weren't comfortable with this mysterious God. They wanted something they could see with their eyes and touch with their hands. And it begins this up and down relationship that the people of God have with this invisible, unseen God that we are still struggling today. And so we ask ourselves in this story, where do we fit in? Where are we in this story? Because the truth is, when I read these passages of scripture, uh, I want to think that I'd be more like Moses. I want to imagine that I would be like Moses on the mountain, just so enveloped by the presence of God. The reality is I'm a lot more like the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. I'm a lot more like the Israelites begging for a golden calf because we're not comfortable with the mystery. We're not comfortable with the vagueness of a God who describes himself, I am who I am. And yes, we have the benefit of Jesus having come as God, as man, and the Holy Spirit living in us, but it doesn't take the mystery away because that was 2,000 years ago. We still struggle with who is this God and how is he working today? And so we want to move back to what's comfortable. We want to move back to Egypt where, yes, the gods may not be as powerful, but they're specific and they have areas at their control and we can name them and we can see them and we can touch them. And while we may not uh, follow the gods of Egypt, we have our own gods that we turn to for security today whether that's the gods of our political parties, whether it's the gods that we made out of our material comfort and financial gain, whether it's the gods we make out of our own selfish ambition and preservation, we find security in them and we turn back to them because they seem real, they seem tangible, and they seem that's something that we can grasp. And instead, what we gather here each week to do is to remind ourselves as a church and to call us together to embrace the mystery. Uh, I want to go ahead and invite David and Eldon to come back up as we continue our worship. But we gather here to remind us that we do not need to go back to Egypt. Instead, we are called to worship this mysterious God. And so we ask ourselves, who is this God? He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Peter and Paul. He is, I am who I am. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning and this time that we have to, to glorify you. Um, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just give us the courage and the faith to, to lean into uh, trusting the mysterious ways that you work. God, I pray that you can help remind us not to, to find comfort in these, these, these false idols and these, uh, these areas that seem tangible and, and specific, but to trust in you and to be so overcome with awe in you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing. Stand and sing this last song together. Lord of all creation.